Hello and welcome to uh, Watch This Space. Thank you for coming. Um, what's been really heartening is that this is the third day that the exhibition uh, has been held. And uh, I think apart from Rohan, I don't see any face who came over the past two days. So every session seems to attract its own distinct audience, which is quite interesting and also quite rewarding as a curator. My name is Anjana Hattatua. I am the editor of a website called Ground Views. Uh, institutionally located at the Center for Policy Alternatives and in a sense um, put this together in collaboration with Ian. I can't see you because of this light. Okay, Ian. Uh, Ian uh, from an organization called Artraker. It's a collaboration. Artraker's information is in the catalog. If you haven't got one, please take one and please take e extras if you want to give it to others as well. There's plenty to go around. Um, a very brief introduction into the exhibition and pardon me if you heard this before. Uh, Watch This Space was um, something that, was, uh, that is being held um, because Art Tracker initially wanted to come to Sri Lanka with art from the countries that you see represented here and approached Saskia Fernando Gallery. And Saskia, who's a good friend of mine, said she doesn't have the time and would I please do it? And it appealed to me if you had the time to go through the art. Uh, what appealed to me was that the art was responding to, located in, part of but also trying to draw a critical appreciation around the context of its creation. Uh, and I encourage you to come during the day because these photos in particular from Afghanistan uh, look remarkably different during the day. And they kind of pop out at you. Um, and the art uh, from obviously Sri Lanka also is our own response to what we have been through uh, and continue to endure in certain parts of the country even after the end of the war. What I found was a frustration with the ideas of transitional justice as they were presented uh, to me by various people writing on it. I think it's a phenomenally useful idea. It's a timely idea, obviously, but the material on it was fairly highfalutin, highbrow, academic, and difficult to kind of grasp or access for me. And just imagine then how it would be for somebody else uh, outside of uh, 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 this kind of community, which is au fait with English and, and fairly removed, in a sense, from the rest of the peoples of this country. So I was interested in, as I have always been, how art and technology uh, combined, individual and combined, could kind of interrogate this issue of this concept, this framework, these definitions of transitional justice. And there, therein lie, lay the seed of uh, Watch This Space. In addition to the art, these kinds of discussions there's also theater. So theater is also an integral part of Watch This Space. It's by a company called Floating Space. It's an original production called Forgetting November. And it resonates, it's anchored to the issues that we will discuss over the course of five or six days. So I encourage you to uh, go see the production. It won't be held at the same time this is being held. I think uh, it's the 26th, 27th, 29th, and 30th. But all the information is in that uh, in that uh, poster over there. So I encourage you to go see that production because it's a continuation of this exhibition. Today's panel is one that um, uh, I thought of because a lot of us are dealing with this challenge in our professional, but also sometimes in our personal lives of how to grasp, how to embrace, how to deal with not forgetting the past and being desirous of a more equitable, just, prosperous, harmonious, peaceful future, 
but in sometimes suggesting that one is open to desirous of championing uh, or uh, somehow partial to that kind of future, risking the uh, almost knee-jerk reaction that you are forgetting the past. So it's a catch-22. Uh, you are uh, not desirous of being hostage to a violent past. You don't want to certainly forget what gave rise to that violence. But you also want to envision a different future. But in envisioning a different future, how then do you embrace a violent past? Because at the end of the day, uh, we know what we have gone through as a country. There is no, obviously, one answer. And the catalog and the questions that framed or frame the presentations you will hear this evening uh, uh, are those that, uh, in a sense, I've been grappling with as well. And I thought that it would be useful to kind of flesh that out a bit more. So those framing questions, the frame for this evening is in the catalog as well. I'm very, very pleased to be joined by uh, Tissa and Vangisa. Uh, online, you will have links to who they are and what they do. I will not waste your time or theirs by introducing them. Uh, suffice to say that I always believe that the content speaks far more, far more than any kind of uh, over-the-top introduction. Uh, Tissa will present the, the keynote today and uh, Vangisa will be our respondent. Tissa I've had the pleasure of knowing for many years in my professional capacity at CPA and has always uh, been both a, support, a critical supporter and a contributor to ground views as well. Vangisa, who I met for the first time today, <laughs> uh, I only have known through uh, uh, the, the wonders of the internet what he looks like. Um, but uh, I must say that in nine years of curating ground views every single day, uh, one of the most enjoyable uh, 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 exchanges uh, have been between Vangisa and Dayan Jayatilaka. Uh, where uh, it was an absolute delight, I can tell you, I can assure you as an editor, uh, to have Vangisa uh, taking on Dayan and have that kind of uh, thrust and parry of wit. I think this was a couple of months ago, uh, almost, was it a year ago almost? And I encourage you because it's, uh, if, if, if anything, that's the kind of content that uh, reaffirms in my mind at least why Ground Views was set up. Uh, so thanks for that. I never got a chance to maybe publicly thank you. Uh, so thank you again for coming, and may I please invite Tissa to give his keynote presentation. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Sanjeeva and uh, Bangisa, same here. I first uh, knew of you when I uh, radio exchange with Diane Jayatilaka, and I remember writing to uh, Sanjana and saying, who is this man or woman, Bangisa Sumanasekara, because uh, it's very difficult, as you know, to get a last word in with Diane Jayatilaka if you have uh, ever had a debate with him. Uh, I had the uh, dubious honor of being his teacher, so I have known him from his undergraduate years, and I know how uh, difficult he can be. He's an interesting chap in his own way, but he can also be difficult at times. And um, uh, so I'm delighted that Vangisa is the respondent to what I have to say, and I must pay a public tribute to him even at the cost of embarrassing him. One of the nice things that happened when I started preparing for this presentation this evening 
was that Vangis and I had some exchanges because I wrote to Sanjana and said, what have you done to me? This is such a difficult uh, uh, task that you have uh, entrusted to me. And there was Vangis so very helpfully saying, yeah, it is complex, but it can be handled. And he was a, more than a calming influence. He was also a person who gave me certain insights and certain perspectives. And I want to thank him before I begin. Uh, very much for that. Um, so I'll get to what I have come up with on this subject. Uh, the subject of war, memory, memorials, memorialization, and the violence of the state has been rekindled both domestically and internationally in recent weeks. Sri Lanka's ongoing election campaign has focused on a long and brutal internecine war and the need for reconciliation. Internationally, the 70th anniversary of the awful events in Hiroshima and Nagasaki has been observed. The Hiroshima Peace Memorial, commonly called the Atomic Bomb Dome in Hiroshima, is part of the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park, designated a UNESCO World Site heritage site in 1996. It serves as a memorial to the atomic bombing of Hiroshima on 6th August 1945. 70,000 is reported killed instantly and a similar number is said to have suffered fatal injuries from radiation. Bombs were dropped on Nagasaki on 9 August 1945 and Nagasaki's Atomic Bomb Museum was built in 2003 around the only structure left standing near the bomb's hypocenter. Some locals opposed the building of the Atomic Bomb Museum while some others were for it. It is now 70 years since the dropping of atomic bombs by the United States. Post-war Japan limited its military to self-defense. Now Prime Minister Shinsho Abe plans to loosen the restrictions on what um, Japan's military can do. Opinion is divided as most in Nagasaki and Hiroshima continue to be supportive of peace and disarmament. According to the mayor of Nagasaki, Tomihisha Tower, there is within quotes, widespread unease about Mr. Abe's legislation that will alter the constitutional requirement limiting Japan's military to self-defense. Meantime, in Chile, the death occurred a few days ago at age 86 of Manuel Contreras, the man who headed Chile's intelligence service, DINA, during the rule of Augusto Pinochet in the 1970s and 80s. Dozens of people gathered at the military hospital in Santiago where Contreras was being treated for cancer. He was serving a sentence of more than 500 years for human rights abuses. The families of the victims say Dina, the former Chilean intelligence service, was behind more than half the cases of murder, disappearance and torture under the Pinochet government. Contreras was one of the main architects of Plan Condor, a coordinated campaign of political repression and assassination 
by military governments in the southern cone of South America. It is said to have killed tens of thousands of people across the region. One of those gathered near the military hospital is reported as saying, and I quote, I'm really happy, but it's a conflicting emotion because the murderer died of illness, but he should have suffered much more, just like many comrades suffered. Pinochet, as we know, seized power in 73 in a military coup that toppled the democratically elected government of Allende. Now, Wangisa Sumanasekara drew my attention to Patricio Guzman's fine documentary released a few years ago titled Nostalgia for the Light. The title of the film is inspired by the title of a 1987 book by French scientist Michel Cassé, Nostalgia for the Light, Mountains and Wonders of Astrophysics. In it, Guzman draws our attention to the similarities between astronomers researching humanity's past in an astronomical sense and the struggle of many Chilean women who still search the Atacama Desert for the remnants of their relatives executed during the dictatorship. Given the above, the exhibition and related discussions we are participating in are as timely as they, are relevant to Sri as they are relevant to Sri Lankan society. Among the literature on the theme I consulted in preparation for today's presentation, the book of essays titled Space and the Memory of Violence, Landscapes of Erasure, Disappearances and Exception, published in November 24, edited by Pamela Colombo and Estela Schindel, drew my attention especially because the origin of the book is associated with a salon and a piano there on which Federico Garcia Lorca used to once play. I had read and studied the place of Lorca, in particular the Blood Wedding, the House of Bernarda Alba and Yerma in my student days and seen some of these performed in Sri Lanka and elsewhere as well. In their introduction to the volume, the editors Colombo and Schindel inform us that the inaugural session of the symposium, Spatialities of Exception, Violence and Memory, for which the essays contained in Space and the Memory of Violence were originally written, took place in February 2012 at the Residencia de Estudiantes, pardon my Spanish, uh, Students' Residency in Madrid. We are further told that this institution has a legendary place in the intellectual history of Spain, having served as an active cultural center in the interwar period. It had been here at this building that many prominent, daringly new, non-conventional artists and scientists like Lorca himself had met and initiated interdisciplinary conversations with a view to forging and dis disseminating new ideas before Franco's dictatorship had put an end to it all. It is fitting that this symposium was held in this spot suffused with Lorca's memory and the piano on which he once played, standing there as a silent witness. 
Lorca, arguably the greatest Spanish language poet of the 20th century, was born in 1898 and disappeared in 1936, was executed by the Francoist regime. Ironic as it may seem, Lorca is a, again, if my Spanish sounds awful, please bear with me, is a desperacidio, one of the disappeared, since his remains have never been found. Colombo and Schindel posed the question, what happens when state crimes do not leave traces and where there are no recognizable graves? How can absence be made visible? Whilst recognizing the immense validity of their questions, that which struck me was why a relevant related question was not posed, namely, what happens when those challenging the state commit crimes without leaving traces? At this point, I realized how complex and difficult the questions and issues related to our theme for discussion today are. I also noticed that most, if not all, of these questions and issues do not have definite, clear, and unambiguous answers, and that dispassionate analysis, therefore, may neither be possible nor desirable. And the exploration and discussion of these issues are compli complicated further by the changing ways in which we get news or information. National identity and honor often depends upon the recitation of selective histories. Thus, many Turks continue to deny Armenian genocide, and many Vietnam veterans remain wedded, as Joanna Bok reminds us, to the defense of it was him or me when justifying the slaughter of unarmed women and children. After the genocidal war in Rwanda, the prisoners accused of war crimes or crimes against humanity still protest their innocence. Bork quotes Robert Black of the Independent on Sunday, dated 31 July 1994, who after a visit to a refugee camp in Goma writes, and I quote, perhaps the most disheartening of all is that most of the Hutus, despite their agony, still do not recognize that what happened to the Tutsis was a crime of enormous proportions. There is a state of collective denial by almost everyone you meet in the camps. People do not see their ordeal as self-imposed, but as the fault of the Tutsis and the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front. We are dying here because of the Tutsis and the cockroaches of the RPF who want to rule over us, said one, one woman, who was absolutely convinced of the correctness of killing Tutsis. End of the quotation. And yet, the need for asking questions and articulating these issues remain of paramount importance. And so I decided that my presentation today, at best, would only be an exploration of this complexity and, ambi and ambiguity rather than attempted last word on the subject. And my exploration will be within my own limitations. I know little or nothing 
about the raging academic controversies over memory and space and memorialization in former sites of terror based on what are termed memory studies or cultural studies. Frankly, these are beyond my academic ken. And if I tried to wade through the welter of available academic material, I would have probably ended up way outside my academic comfort zone. I therefore propose to approach my topic basing myself on my knowledge of literature and life and my familiarity with the violence of the state and the violence of those who seek to oppose the state. I also wish to confine myself to Sri Lanka and the violence that we have endured at home in recent decades. Under the broad theme of sites of violence, sites of memory reframing the past, our topic today includes a number of sub-themes and significant questions. And these are, should sites of violence have new lives suitably transformed? Should these sites remain as they are as a memorial to the crimes committed at these sites? Should we dwell on the past or pick up the pieces move on and get on with our lives. Circumstances have changed after the violence and war that began decades ago and came to an end in 2009, in the May of 2009. Yet, should, we not, should not we question the nature of the Sri Lankan state? Will Sri Lanka become more inclusive and ensure that the rights and dignity of all of its citizens are respected or will one segment of Sri Lanka continue to dominate the rest and perpetuate the endless struggle for domination, which will eventually lead to mutual ruin? Should not we seek to transform and democratize the state so as to make demands for separation irrelevant? Some of us, perhaps a majority, happy that the voice behind us seem not at all keen on analysis of the causes that led to war, the role of the LTT in it, and that of the state in meeting and overcoming the armed challenge to its authority. Nor have we yet figured out a way in which we should remember all who died and care for others maimed and traumatized. And what of those marginalized youth who died in the two southern insurrections. I remember those who perished in 1971. I was a student at the university and lost a fair number of my friends, and also the 1987 to 89 period. But I will leave that discussion for another time. Let me, however, be clear. I refer here to all Sri Lankans who died, were maimed and traumatized regardless of their ethnicity or if they died in defending or attacking the state. Here I am reminded of Antigone, Sophocles' tragic play based on the legend of Thebes. This play looks at the whole question of challenges to the state and the state's response to those challenges as a morally ambiguous issue. Two of Antigone's brothers die in battle one attacking the state of Thebes and the other defending it. 
Creon, the king of Thebes, decrees that Eteocles, the brother who dies defending the state, is buried within courts with all honorable observations due to the dead, while Polynices, the other brother who dies attacking the state, is not given burial. It is important for us to remember that for the ancient Greeks, burial after death was crucial for the afterlife of the dead. According to Greek belief of the time, the departed soul does not rest until the body is properly buried. In the circumstances, Antigone was convinced that the morally correct thing for her to do as an individual was to ignore the dictates of the state and give burial to her brother. By her action, she was proclaiming that loyalty to one's loved one overrides one's obedience to the state. In similar vein, the state represented by her uncle Creon argues that it has the right to safeguard itself and its citizens. The audience or the reader of the play is left with the notion, paradoxical as this may sound, that both are right and both are wrong. And what is made startlingly clear at the end of the play is that the state's suppression of the individual, Antigone, uh, her right to bury her dead and mourn that passing, leads to tragedy, the destruction of everything of value, and eventually to the vitiation of the state as represented by Creon. The gap between a good ruler and tyrant is very narrow. Creon wants to be a good ruler but ends up a tyrant. Most of us seem to feel that any questioning of how the war ended in Sri Lanka in May 2009 is unnecessary and to do so is to be disloyal to the state especially as the US-sponsored UNHRC resolution against Sri Lanka hangs like a sword of Damocles over the country, those who seek to raise questions about the war's end are even viewed as traitors. It is that old, you are either with us or against us philosophy, most recently popularized by George W. Bush. A few of us who wish to look critically at the past with an open mind are looked upon with suspicion and even hostility. But despite the attendant risks, a look backwards, not in anger or in a judgmental sense, is certainly called for, as this will enable us to confront our tragic and blighted past. Such a sensitive and careful examination will help us to understand better our past and assist us to come to terms with it. For without this interrogation of our past and coming to terms with it, our present will remain muddled and our future very bleak. It is true that a frank and open discussion about our past in order to confront that which drove us to war and its aftermath has not taken place in our mainstream media, as Sanjana has suggested, or within our national politics. Some members of our academic community have produced well-researched papers on certain aspects of the war and Sri Lanka's post-war future that the International Center for Ethnic Studies, Sri Lanka, 
as published in 2012 and 2013. Some political entities, especially the United National Front for Good Governance and its leader, Ranil Vikramasinghe, talk of setting up a truth commission similar to that South Africa established some years ago. What I propose to do in the next several minutes is to offer some personal comments on issues such as memories and scars of war and trauma and my thoughts on reconciliation in no particular order. So here goes. We human beings need to remember some things and forget others. It is natural to want to remember the pleasant and forget the unpleasant. Sometimes even unpleasant things linger in our memory whether we like it or not. As I pondered over this presentation this evening, one of the questions that came to my mind was, why do we have cemeteries? This question arose when I was reminded of the cemeteries of the Tamil Tiger dead in the north, which have been destroyed post-war and on some of which Army Divisional Headquarters now stand. We have cemeteries so we can bury the remains of our loved ones and have a location we can visit if we wish to, on special days or holy days. Of course, it's a given that the loved one is not present in that grave. But yet, there are many who feel a compelling urge and need to visit a grave and remember a loved one. And to these latter, the burial site and the gravestone thus serve as vivid reminders of the person they once knew and loved. To raise a cemetery to the ground is thus an act of abomination, a vilification of the spirit in which we recognize the other human like ourselves. We all have a right to remember and to celebrate as well as mourn our absent loved ones. However, not everyone mourns or desires to have a permanent burial place. Many have their ashes scattered in a river in the sea or even on land, in a spot that was special to them. What of them, if they are happy to have their mortal remains scattered to the four winds of heaven, then why is it such, horrend such a horrendous act to destroy a cemetery? The key difference is the latter is by choice, while the former symbolizes the oppressive power of the state over a people when it denies them to write to grieve and mourn the passing of a loved one. This begs the question why a state would destroy a harmless memorial like a cemetery? Why does it prevent people from mourning the passing of loved ones? I would think there are two compelling reasons which make the state to act irrationally. These are fear and the desire for revenge. The state is fearful because the memorial site could galvanize the loved ones into acting passionately, irrationally perhaps, and even fearlessly. Love is a powerful emotion and grief over the loss of a loved one could even turn a lamb into a lion. Grieving parents, spouses, siblings and children could become a cataclysmic force which could threaten the state. At another level, the agents of the state who fought 
and overcame the so-called enemies of the state also feel the urge to flex their muscles in the manner that conquering armies have done through the ages in a bid to show them i.e. the defeated what's what thus while the first reason is linked to fears about state security unfounded or otherwise the latter that is the show of force through muscle flexing is a consequence of a baser human instinct one that needs to be deplored and condemned by civilized human beings hence the destruction of a memorial site like a cemetery could be the result of either one of the above reasons or a combination of the two security concerns plus the desire to rub the enemy's nose in the dust but such action becomes entirely counterproductive as it would only serve to strengthen the differences between the conquering and the conquered people by such perverse and vindictive behavior so at odds with our religio cultural values we will have merely scorched the snake not killed it so what are the alternatives available to the state in such a context there are no easy answers to this question it has been said that a state will use whatever means are at its disposal to subdue rebellion and crush a threat to its existence when people fight they do not hold a book of rules in their hands particularly so when the perceived enemy too does not abide by the rule book countries faced with civil unrest within their borders and threats from without will do all in their power to safeguard themselves even if in the process they contravene geneva conventions if they do so the un human rights commission will throw the rule book at them as they must do however this is complicated by the fact that the rule book is not thrown at everyone who deserves to be at the receiving end the powerful states of the world seem to be exempt from the rules that are applied stringently to the actions of less powerful states leading to the outcry against the double standards in operation yes double standards are in operation and it is unfair and unfortunate that this should be so the absence of a set of standards to aspire to the absence of us un policing however imperfect however would and could lead to anarchy or state terror the state as we know it has evolved over time we are no longer an island entire in itself but a part of the main the evolving world seems to be more barbaric in its behavior and yet because of new developments in the spheres of knowledge and education hyper aware of its own barbarity we are also no longer inviolable no longer separate we are no we no longer have a choice about whether or not we want to become a part of the global village we are a part of it as long as technology connects us instantly to the rest of the world as long as we sell to foreign markets and buy from buy from them as long as we move freely to and from other states borders become fluid conversely this movement is paralleled by a counter movement towards separation 
Secessionist movements are on the rise, giving rise to conflicts between the existing nation state and its challengers. Perhaps the time has come to frame a new world order. John Lennon, as we all know in this room, famously sang and said, imagine there is no country and no religion too. Maybe there's a message here for the 21st century. Is to reimagine the state in the manner suggested impossibly idealistic? Perhaps so, perhaps not. Now for some difficult but essential concluding thoughts about reconciliation, accountability and justice. These pose enormous challenges, accountability in particular. Even at the risk of oversimplifying issues, let me say the following. There seems to be two very different and mutually exclusive points of view on one and the same phenomenon, which in the context of a protracted and bloody internecine war between the two main ethnicities of the country become impossible to mediate. For the singular person, even at the risk of brutally reducing the stakes here, the soldier not only represents the hero who sacrificed life and limb to safeguard the motherland and the security of the Sinhalese, but they are also, and quite literally, the sons of the rural poor in the Sinhala heartland. For the Tamil, that soldier represents the murderer who killed their kith and kin. In other words, with the same force that the Tamils would seek justice for the loss of their loved ones, the Sinhalese would continue to see in the soldier the image of a savior. This is the dreadful limit of the term accountability. How will the Sinhala men and women in the South ever agree to a process whereby those who are held accountable for the crimes would be punished? Any attempt at a forcible enactment of an investigate, investigatory body, domestic or international, will only ever strengthen Sinhala Buddhist extremism, giving rise in turn to politicians who would manipulate these sentiments. But this seeming point of impossibility is also the point on which politics resides at least in the sense it was used in all great emancipatory projects from the communist movements and national liberation struggles to women's movement and gay lesbian struggles if we agree that is that politics consisting consists in making seem possible precisely that which from within the situation is it is declared to be impossible in this sense, it is around this point of impossibility the future of a different Sri Lanka is tenable. In concrete terms, and again at the risk of simplification, this means that there is really no midpoint at which the two contrasting opinions can meet on this issue, and we will always see either the vast or the two faces, as per Rubin. This means that the political future in our country will depend on the extent to which we can make the Sinhalese society understand the ju justifiable nature of the demand of the Tamil men and women who are trying to cope with the trauma of loss of life, hope and desire. A trauma of loss of life, 
hope and desire similar, I might add, to that which the next of kin of those victims of the two southern insurrections have endured for several decades now. As a point of the impossibility, it is also a point of intersection between art and politics. And it is in the sphere of art that some of the most serious attempts at grasping this seeming impossibility have been made. From the cinema of Prasanna Vitanage, Asoka Handagama, Vimukti Jayasundara, to the paintings of Jagat Veerasinghe, Chandra Gupta, Tenuara and all, and others. This leads us to the question of political art and its relevance in the era after the demise of 20th century communism. What role will it play in the process of thinking of the Sri Lankan future from the point of view of this impossibility we have been focusing on? What noble idea do they teach us about art and also about politics? Sketchy and elementary though these thoughts may be, I believe that searching for answers to these queries are indeed significant as we grapple with ourselves to shape our post-war future. We all know only too well that healing the wounds and divisions of any society in the aftermath of sustained violence is no easy task. The creation of trust and understanding between former enemies is a monumental challenge. If we are serious about seeking peaceful coexistence, however, a genuine attempt to forge such trust and understanding has to be made. Such an attempt at reconciliation is an essential stepping stone to a lasting and enduring peace. For South Africa, truth was at the heart of reconciliation. This, I'm convinced, is equally important for Sri Lanka. We need to find out the truth about the horrors of our past so that we could attempt to ensure they do not happen again. Without getting at the truth, we will not be able to place our faith and confidence in our future. As Bishop Desmond Tutu has argued, examining the painful past, acknowledging it, and above all transcending it together is the best way to guarantee that we do not go back to war once more. Our aim should be to build a shared future from a divided past. Thank you. Thank you, Tessa. Vangisa, would you... Thanks, Anjana and Tissa, uh, for that wonderful talk. I will be uh, very brief. A uh, few days ago, Tissa sent me uh, uh, the talk that he prepared, so I prepared some notes myself. Uh, not necessarily in response, uh, but because I more or less agree with uh, most of the things Tissa said. Uh, so I just, I will just raise few points and hopefully I, is there a time for a uh, audience discussion and then we can talk more uh, the first thing i must say is that i would agree with this uh, of the enormous difficulty in attempting to grasp a multifaceted phenomenon like the issue at hand today uh, in thought and by thought this is an issue although i'm not quite sure if issue is the most appropriate term here that is overridden with the uh, meaning 
of you know politics ideologies desires aspirations and effects uh, the most difficult point that we have to address um, but i dare not raise it in its full force here is the issue of truth right i think this is the the fundamental question behind this word accountability uh, uh, you know uh, uh, a need for uh, some sort of an investigation about what happened is is this idea of truth that we 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 need to seek truth right that's an elementary um mode of being being human it should be mentioned straight away that the notion of truth at least in socrates has been used as an equivalent term uh, to the term justice you know truth and justice they are the same what we want is justice and which is in this case means the same thing as truth uh one of the things i mean one of the first points i i would like to raise uh, with regard to this talk is this passing remark uh, he made about um the youth uh, who died in the anti state uprisings in the south both in 1971 and 1989 i think uh, this just made a passing remark to that but i i would like to 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 talk more about it uh i think this is closer to us in the south i mean at least i believe that most of us here today present here um are mainly from the south um so this experience is in a way closer to us uh, the people who were involved we knew them personally and and i mean if you're old enough you know to to be alive in 1971 and 1989 so we knew we, we knew this situation i think these experiences would give us first right this is the first point potential perhaps the less important point the first potential clues to imagine what may have happened in the north i think this is maybe not directly related but i think it's somewhat related to uh, to our discussion right what happened during the final phases of the war that we watched on tv right when tv presenters were giving us the the comparative comparative numerical figures of the dead and the you know the geographical expansion of state authority uh we remember how the same state military acted when it was threatened by singhala youth uprising we remember this right this we we know what happened in the south we 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 experienced it first hand uh that history is sufficiently documented and i just want to make that point how would the same state that unleashed a relentless and torturous bloodbath in front of our own eyes in the south in 1971 and 1989 behaved in the north when it was barred from the whole world and the enemy this time is not even singular but an ethnic minority that has been driven to extreme poverty through years of war torn marginalization how would the state behave we can imagine right if we consider how the state behaved in 1989 in front of our own eyes in colombo and and you know in in singhala dominated areas the second point i mean perhaps the most important with regard to our present theme um again related to these insurrections in the south uh it gives us some preliminary answers to our opening questions for instance to the question uh posed by the organizers i'm assuming sanjana must have written this should sites of violence have new li- new lives and under transformation or remain a memorial to the crimes committed there right we have a ready made answer if we consider the situation in the south those sites of violence in the south indeed have had new lives and they have not remained memorial to the crimes committed there i mean it's very simple right we we don't have memories and even more powerfully we can take the i think the paradigmatic example uh, of the fate of the beautiful shrine of the innocent um, that was um, a monument slash uh, 
installation art were created by Jagat Veer Singha. Um, for remembering uh, the lives of 34, uh, I'm not sure about the number, 30 odd number of students uh, who were killed, tortured to their death uh, in early 90s in Ambilipitiya, that is a, a, a city in, in, in southern Sri Lanka. Uh, during this second insurrection, um, for those who are not familiar with the story, this story, the, the, this 30 odd number of students, they were not actually, I mean, they were not even suspected of being involved with the, the insurrection. They were purely for personal grudge that some other person had had against them. Uh, some, some family fight. Um, um, we are also, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, recently, I, I know we are all familiar with uh, murders uh, with regard to personal relationships. Uh, and uh, so this is something similar. Uh, all these innocent students, A-level students, no, A-level students, I think, they were murdered, tortured. I mean, this, this, this is well documented. There's in, in, enough evidence. Plenty of survivors have given their accounts of what happened in the torture, torture chambers. They were tortured. They had absolutely nothing to do with the JVP. They were not even suspected of being involved with the JVP. Uh, but they were tortured to death. And this, this case became uh, a symbol uh, of the anti, you know, the 1994-93 the, the peace movement that emerged with the leadership under Chandrika Kumar Tunga. This uh, Abilipitiya issue was a symbol of that and after Chandrika Kumar Tunga came into power, uh, remembering in memory of these uh, children, this monument was built uh, in front of, uh, I don't know what, uh, it's, it's near the parliament. Yeah, where the, what, what is it? Good market. Now, uh, what what we know as the good market was, and about I think four or five years ago, um, um, during the last uh, regime, uh, when Colombo was undergoing what uh, yeah. Chandragupta Tenura calls beautification. No? I mean that during that that project process, uh, the shrine was demolished, right? And it's there's nothing there. Um, as we all know, not only the monument was demolished, but in it. Uh, it was replaced by a park where local residents could walk around in the evening buying you know, plants and junk food. So, I mean, the issue I want to raise is, I mean, in, related, in, rela in relation to Thesis' talk is, I mean, what does this experience teach us about the nature of the problem in the North? Because, I mean, there is, a, I think, this is a, uh, an extreme that we have to avoid. There's a certain tendency to see, I mean, to ontologize uh, this issue in the North, like someday this, this problem will eventually, the truth will be revealed. I don't think it, there is any inner necessity, like any, like in a, in a pseudo-Hegelian sense of history, that one day we'll, we'll uncover the injustice. I don't think that is necessarily the case. I mean, we have in the South, have agreed to completely forget about these horrendous experiences we had, personally had, in 1971-1989, and, and we live like as if nothing had happened. Incidentally, um, uh, the JVP, this newly popular emerging JVP itself, is completely silent about this. Right? Right, the second question I would like to ask from Thissa is concerning his critique of the UN. Right? I, I think he's, this little bit like, you know, over hasty remark concerning the inevitability of the rules being broken during a uh, war of this nature. For I fear that this this dangerously closer to the arguments made by those forces who try to uphold the ethno-nationalist dominance that paved the way to the crisis in the first place. 
Of course, there is no denial of the fact that UN is dominated by certain powerful states. I mean, I think everyone would agree with that. Uh, and the neutrality of its bodies is highly questionable, of course. There's no question about it. But does that mean we can fall back to the argument that says something like, okay, since they don't question those who are powerful, then we too should uh, you know, get a free hand to do whatever we want. This is the argument. This is an argument made by you know, uh, the et extremist ethno-nationalist forces themselves. Right? In the same way, I think it's a bit too, maybe perhaps misguiding uh, to say that these things happen in a war like this. I mean, I, I am not willing to, uh, you know, uh, make that compromise that easily. Yes, I agree. I mean, in a, in, a, in a bloody war like this, it's not going to be fought according to some rule, some law. Yes, I, I see the, 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 the pragmatic aspect of that argument. But does that mean, I mean, when, but when we articulate it, shouldn't, I, I think it's very important that we shouldn't give an inch uh, to the other side which argues that you know this is the way things are done so we just might as well move on um, right and one final point I mean one theoretical point I think I, it would be nice because it's like directly you can derive from what this last concluding remarks especially about this impossibility because it's it, it you know those who are familiar with uh, Freudian and especially Lacanian psychoanalysis uh, would, would know this, this notion of the real, what Lacan calls the real. Um, Lacanian notion of the real, uh, I think it's useful in this sense. The basic idea of the real in Lacan is that symbolization never achieves a completeness of fullness, resulting in a non-symbolizable residue. It's basically like we live in a meaningful universe. Everything around us, this microphone, this, this podium, this table, everything is, has a meaning. We, everything we see has meaning. So this is a symbolic world. Everything is a symbol. In this symbolic world, when we try to articulate everything through language, uh, there will always be a residue, something that is non-symbolizable. But residue here is slightly misleading because the real is not something beyond the symbolic representation, but rather the very impossibility of signifying representation. Hence, Lacan's formula real qua impossible. You know, impossibility is real. When you try to, when you try to say something, like, you know, like those who are, I mean, I don't know, say, for example, if you take the experience of being in love, you say that I love someone. Why do you love someone? You will try to explain it in, in, in a certain way, but Ultimately, there is something you can't explain. You know, I mean, I don't know if anyone rem remembers seeing this uh, wonderful documentary of Derrida, uh, Jacques Derrida, the, the, the French philosopher, um, where the, the, the person doing the interview keeps asking, uh, you know, where Derrida met his wife uh, and so on. And then Derrida says, I can give you raw facts, right? We met in 1965 and so on. But there is a point beyond which it, it's difficult for me to articulate in, in words, right? There is a certain impossibility. Um, so it's not the real thing when uh, object is stripped of all identifications or denominations. It is rather an excess created by the very process of symbolic articulations, this excessive uh, re residue. The material base of this notion is the Freudian formula of the symptom. You know, it's, it's based on the classical psychoanalytic idea of symptom, which defies rational explanation and manifested only through the gaps or failures of symbolic logic, word slips, obsessive behavior, historical outbursts, etc. In any situation, in any symbolic field, the point of impasse 
or the point of impossibility, I think this uh, rightly said, which precisely allows us to think the situation as a well. whole. If you look at the situation, like if you look at, say, the patient's history from the point of view of the symptom, from the, the, the slip of the tongue, incidentally, I don't know if you noticed there was one slip in this uh, talk. He wanted to say UN and he said US. I leave it at, uh, uh, right? Um, so based on that slip, we can re-articulate the history, patient's history. So I mean, in the same way, I mean, when you apply it to politics or society at large, based on this point, the real point, uh, you, can, you can see the whole, right? Uh, so in this sense, we can say that the inappropriately term issue of accountability is a real point from the standpoint of which we can see the idea of a harmonious and unified singular nation state in its inherent incompleteness. Right? Uh, but the point of impossibility is also the point on which politics resides. Right? This is the idea. At least in the sense it was used in, uh, as this noticed in, in emancipatory politics, that point of the impossibility is, is the point from which we can see what we imagine to be a totality, a harmonious totality, a completeness. But if you locate yourself, position yourself on this point, you can see it's not complete. There is something missing here. And I think this will allow us to think or reimagine uh, a different Sri Lanka. And I think in this regard, this is a wonderful talk. Um, so basically, those are my points. Uh, um, I don't know if this is interested, you can respond to that, or we can uh, make the flow open to yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We have mics if anybody wants to respond ask a question give a comment please do so we have plenty of time yep uh, do please keep in mind please speak to the mic uh, one of the reasons we're recording this is there's been a fair bit of interest by the diaspora in the proceedings and we would like to record it we record every session and we will eventually put it up online as well so Please uh, speak to a mic. Thank you. Go ahead. Okay. I mean, it's a re response to Wangisa's first point that we think about JVP and 71 and 89 as a way of getting to the Tamil problem. And I think, I guess the problem with that is you always have to think about the Sinhalese to get to the Tamil, right? Or you can't think of the Tamil. Like, so you have to imagine yourself in pain. And the otherness of the Tamil is impossible. Unless you could, I mean, I, I guess that's my question. Do you always have to think of yourself <laughs> and never of the other or the radical difference of the other? So I, mean, I guess that's uh, my question regarding media, mediating it through the JVP. So, I don't know if that's a question or a comment. It's more a comment than a question, but uh, my response to that is that I look at life in the totality. I do not subscribe to the ethnic labels. I use them only because they exist and they are convenient. I don't think, I, for, for me, there are no Tamils or Sri Lanka, uh, Sinhalese in Sri Lanka. There are all Sri Lankans here. And for the sake of convenience and for the sake of inclusivity, which I like, whenever I discuss the violence in the North, I don't separate the violence that had occurred in the South. And that's, that's my response to that. Uh, the, one thing about uh, what Wangisa said I'd like to respond to is that I didn't uh, 
say that we don't need the UN intervention in Sri Lanka. If you noticed, I said, however imperfect, uh, it is good that they are there to throw the rule book at us. But what I deplored is the fact that they seem to be acting uh, with one set of rules for developing countries, one set of rules for the other countries, and uh, or less powerful states, as I said, and it only strengthens the hand of those who look at this issue partially. Because people can then say, oh, don't take these fellows seriously. They are just politically motivated. They don't like us because we don't support them or we don't offer them bases or we don't give them trincomalee, as if that's the last thing that there is to be given. So uh, it gives people who are using uh, some excuse to justify what they are doing, more ammunition, by the double standard that is uh, employed. That's that I was deploring that, not that I said that the UN should not uh, chastise us for what we do wrong. There is, a, if I may interject as moderator, there is a um, very interesting, timely intervention that you might find very interesting. It's going to make the news tomorrow. I was just sent before this discussion a letter in Singhala that has been sent by President Sirisena to Mahindra Rajapaksa. Uh, I don't know what the order is going to be in the English translation, which they are still doing, but if you can read and understand Singhala, on page three, the last para speaks directly to that question, and you will find it very interesting, in how President Sirisena is taking to task Mahindra Rajapaksa uh, for his uh, views on take on actions towards and conceptualization of uh, minorities in Sri Lanka. That in President Sirisena's terms, it's very nuanced singular, so the translators have a hard night ahead of them. Uh, he, he, he decimates the, the, the former president's uh, take on, on minorities. It's, uh, by the way, this letter has just been released, should make the news tonight and definitely tomorrow. Uh, any other uh, questions? One in front. I think this is more a comment than a question. Um, I'm really interested in the position that is given to truth in this forum. What I would like to see more of is uh, the scientific work that says that there actually aren't any different races. Every human on the, life on the planet goes back to one African woman. Um, I think I love the notion of getting to a point of impossibility. It reminded me of the Gordian knot in Greek history. Um, and I think <laughs> maybe today's solution is not to cut it the way Alexander did, but to unravel it. And in doing that, one strand would be truth, or rather, maybe the, all the strands are how do you get to the truth of each strand? The strand I felt was missing was that governance is at least in our part of the world through politicians it might be through the corporations in the western world but in our part of the world it's still, it's still politicians and it's incredibly useful for a politician to be able to divide and rule you can manipulate people much more easily through their affairs i was talking to a woman i consider very intelligent she came to us as a servant in 1960 and <laughs> I don't know what word to put on it, not horror, but a kind of sadness. Um, she talks about me demelu, 
මට හරියට කැමති නැහැ now she has no reason to dislike the tamils except i imagine what she has heard about them from the state and so in unraveling the gordian knot to really take a part and allow the population to see the way in which their fears are stirred up so they can be manipulated as opposed to their fears having base any basis in truth and that not only are we sri lankans we are members of the world and there is no racial difference between us and the caucasians and the negroes and the the chinese um might be something that really needs to be brought out more in 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 sri lanka and i was wondering what the panelists views are about how to make this myth and i use the term in its uh, pejorative sense of race and ethnic difference um really should not have any more bearing and be should be, should be shown to be the superstition that it is yeah. <laughs> any other comments or questions hi i've been in sri lanka quite a while and i am very appreciative of this forum and what i really have enjoyed i think about this year especially is watching all these things happen over the past 20 years where it went from documentarians making movies that called the art of forgetting up to now where we're saying we're remembering and i include myself in sri lanka in that it is a very important part of my life so i'm very happy with the developing development that we're now going from the art of forgetting to now trying to remember and to hold governments accountable and ourselves especially so that was just my comment thank you yes right yeah thanks for your sharing your thoughts on this topic I just had a few comments to make and the first was I wasn't expecting a clear cut answer to with the sites of memorial should have take on an, a new life or remain as part of history and to know for the future generation to know about what happened there but I also think that these sites uh, physical spaces also change their meaning for example I think uh, Chandragupta Thenavara's uh, monument um uh, commemorating the wo- the war while while it was there for people to mourn it also can take a religious connotation and that's something that meaning of certain memorials can change over time and the other comment i want to make was that uh, for for the youth of today who haven't seen the horrors of the war for example i think the title is sites of violence and sites of memory the, the i think that's the intentional homonym there like we haven't seen the violence so it's and we haven't experienced that the violence in the particular space so i think it's important for that intergenerational memory to be sustained uh, yes that's my comment i went to jaffna at the height of the war and one of the things i felt when i saw those cemeteries was that they were not just cemeteries to grieve for the dead they were also there were play, playgrounds adjoining it and there were um seesaws with guns and things and it was a huge amount of um recruitment propaganda for young people as well so while i agree with you this is that 
you know, you have to have room to mourn the dead and I don't think that the cemetery should have been destroyed and camps built on top of them. I just wanted to add that as a comment that when you saw them at the height of the war and you went in there, there was a little bit of kind of, uh, were these cemeteries or were these celebrations of the dead in some way to kind of get the children in and seeing those AK-47 guns as seesaws is a little bit disquieting. Um, can I ask you a question on that question, that there's a riff off that. Um, you talked about the world as symbols and symbolism and uh, that meaning is mediated through that which we uh, perceive to be or give uh, meaning to, in a sense. The world is defined by that which we give meaning to. Now, if, if that, is, that, that question is taken as a concrete example, where would you locate the response of a state with regards to the physical artifacts of the other? Uh, is it a cemetery that in the process of othering you would always, always see as that, because I went there as well, I mean I went to, uh, to, to Mahavir there during when Prabhakaran was alive at the height of the war and it, it was very much that, but post-war do you want to uh, eviscerate all evidence in that regard in the hope of that uh, in the hope of new structures built atop it that seek to forget? Or do we keep it intact in the courage or the fullness of the belief that people will see it differently when the context that gave rise to it has also changed? No, I, th I think, Sanjana, it's a, it's, it's a perfect example um, of you know what we were talking about as a point of an impossibility, but because if you consider the the, the narrative uh, that was articulated, structured, uh, you know, from within the south uh, during uh, you know the process when this huge uh, military, the you know the, the military alliance, the the bureaucratic alliance, the diplomatic alliance, this this whole uh, uh, structure, the military structure of the state was built. Uh, it was articulated in a certain way, and 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 if you if you follow it from through that narration, uh, from that narrative perspective, it's I mean it's it's literally impossible uh, to to give uh, an existence to acknowledge the existence that you know this is a, a, a space that has to be uh, saved or, or you know it's a monument that should be uh, preserved. Um, so. How are we going to keep that? If you want to keep that, um, I mean, we will basically have to change the whole discourse of um, how that this idea of the, the, the Tamil uh, tiger or the, the, the LTT Carter uh, was interpreted uh, because there was a very uniform, um, reduct reductive um, um, interpretation definition of the LTT Carter. It was a, the, the terrorist, right? I mean, of course, I agree that if you go by the standard definitions of terrorism. They were, uh, in a certain sense, a terrorist organization. But uh, th then again, I, 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 I would, you know, use uh, what, um, um, who's that, the Pakistani uh, Marxist, Aijaz Ahmed, Aijaz Ahmed, who said that terrorism um, is the, the um, sigh of the poor, you know, or, or even more famously, I think, John Paul Sartre said, Terrorism is a nuclear bomb of the poor. So, so I mean, so you have to be willing to change the whole discourse, and and that 
a particular site can only be acknowledged as a point you know that a point that it can be allowed to exist if we agree uh, to change the the whole discourse i mean the 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 symbolic way um, we structure this idea of the north people in the north uh, our relation i'm again i might be accused of thinking you know um, in terms of uh, Southern Sri Lanka, but I mean, m- maybe to, to give a very brief uh, feedback on that to Nivanti, I think um, the uh, more, I mean, this is more of a strategic uh, or, or a tactical um, approach that I have um, used uh, when I'm discussing with, with those who are completely away from this, this, this world, you know, that, that we are involved in, fortunately, or I think unfortunately would be the more uh, curate way. Uh, you know, the, the quote-unquote average Sinhala uh, man. You know, when you try to engage with them, when you try to, uh, you know, tell them why, what is this international inquiry, I mean, the, the, again, the, they have this very reductive, simple narrative which has been given to them, you know, this is an international conspiracy against our country, led by so-and-so states and so on. So, so in order to show them maybe there is another point of view, uh, I think I have personally experienced this, this particular example very useful. Just think of what happened in 1989. You know, it was uh, a Sinhala rebellion, Sinhala insurrection, and the, how did the army react? We saw it, right? And um, so can you imagine uh, what happened during those you know, few months uh, when the media was blocked out? And, you know, only thing we were fed were the things that we saw on TV. Um, perhaps uh, the, the international intelligence services and so on were aware of it through their satellites, whatever. But none of the like, ordinary people like us, we didn't know what happened. So we can only imagine. And, and what is the clue that, we, that will help us to imagine what, ha- what may have happened is, is the experience we had in 1989. You know, how did that turn out? And, and so, yeah. I don't know. I, I, with I Any other questions or comments? Yeah. I just wanted to comment on um, uh, Tissa's remarks that uh, he doesn't see Sinhalese and Tamils. He only likes to see Sri Lankans. Uh, I mean, it may, it may be an, an ideal expressed with the best of intentions, but number one, it doesn't respond to reality. And number two, it, it seems to me it's something which is potentially dangerous because it can be uh, taken by others or distorted by others into a suppression of diversity. I mean, one international example as a comparative you can give is, is Turkey, where uh, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk created the modern Turkish state out of the Ottoman Empire uh, by denying any kind of diversity for 70 years. There were no Kurds, no Armenians, no Georgians, no Greeks. Everybody was a Turk, and his his famous phrase was happy as the man who, called, who could call himself a Turk. Uh, and I think there is a danger in being afraid to celebrate diversity, for perhaps for the best of intentions, uh, but it can, it can lead you down a dangerous path, it seems to me. And, and that's why I, I, would, I would agree that, that if you're talking about truth, uh, it, it's very difficult to see how you can get to any truth in, in the conflict in the north without addressing full-on the, the truth of what happened in the South, particularly in, in, in 1988 to, to 90. Because it, it, it seems to me you need to, you need to take the majority community with you uh, 
in that exploration. And I mean, South Africa is the example when people talk about truth and reconciliation. It was the majority community there that had been uh, suppressed for, for decades. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a minority. It was the minority that was doing the suppressing. Uh, and, and so therefore, I think in South Africa, it was easier to have that process of truth and reconciliation because the majority were determined that it would happen. Uh, and it just seems to me, and I, I don't know whether you agree, without, without, you know, beyond the sphere of intellectual and political debate, without taking the majority of the majority with you on that journey, it's never going to succeed. Thank you for your comment. Uh, um, as far as I go, my reality is that I don't recognize ethnicity. I agree with you that there's an outer reality, which does. So I was speaking more from within my own inner reality, because I have always believed that I'm a citizen of this world, I'm a Sri Lankan, and then if you want to paste a label on me, I'm a Sinhalese. But for me, it is a myth, and it will always remain a myth. And I was looking at it from that perspective. But that does not mean that I do not celebrate pluralism. I'm all for what I would call cultural pluralism, but on the grounds of ethnicity, I find it very difficult to bring myself to identify people, but I recognize the dangers that that could lead to at a general level, at the level of outside of me, and therefore I take your point. But for me, I'm very sincere in saying this, it doesn't matter to me who you are. Ultimately, it's your human worth that matters to me, and to the extent that I use these labels, as Wangisa said, I didn't witness the war. None of us was able to accept those who were able to get to Jaffna or be on the front because you were connected to the army or to the political establishment. So we can only imagine what happened. And therefore, uh, we compare and contrast what happened in the South, as Wangisa very correctly said, and that's our point of reference. But I take you a larger point and that there can be a danger in that. But I was, as I said, speaking personally and based on my own reality and not an external reality. I'm just thinking out aloud, but isn't there a problem about positing the state as against us? The state as against the South, the state as against the North, the state is us. In this so-called democracy, we voted the state in. They're just ordinary middle class, lower middle class, ordinary working, whatever people from us that have got elevated into the state. And the state that operated against the JVP was possibly a very different party and a very different set of people from the state that, is operating against, that operated against the Tamils in the north. So when you say, imagine if they perpetrated these horrors in front of our eyes, what are they doing behind our backs? I mean, perhaps it's because we never opened our eyes and screamed at that point when we saw it, that they, then this, the state, gets a kind of immunity from, uh, from, from us, from the public, and is able to perpetrate further violence in, in, in greater degrees, perhaps, when we are not watching. If we can watch and not scream out aloud, then uh, why should they expect us to... to, to um, so I'm, what I'm trying to say, perhaps, is that it's in, in what I'm calling a so-called democracy, but in any case, we vote these people into power then why do we suddenly stand apart and say, the state, they did this to us. We've done it to ourselves in a funny form, if you, if you look at it correctly, I think.
thank you very much for this point um, i i wanted to actually um, raise this issue myself the issue of the state uh, i it slipped my mind uh, i mean how do we understand this 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 phenomenon uh, i think that's a million i don't have i'm not trying to give an answer i'm just acknowledging the seriousness of i i i wouldn't identify myself with the state um, i mean there's a big debate um, you know if in a different kind of political philosophers uh, there is a position um, that even in the text change i had with ayan chaitilaka we were touching on this issue that certain thinkers are of the opinion that politics has to happen outside the order of the state and there are certain others who think that you know this grabbing state power uh, is uh, um, is a priority in politics um i personally don't know i mean i, I am agnostic um, I'm an agnostic and uh, comes to this issue but I I agree uh, the the I mean how do we define the Sri Lankan state I mean there are general guidelines that we can um, we can get if you consider a thinker like um Giorgio Agamben uh, the Italian philosopher who has this whole theory about you know the formation of 20th century state which he calls state of exception the state of exception becoming the norm so we don't have i mean the idea of democracy and 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 again um the other on the other hand this uh, argument developed by uh, someone like slavoj zizak who says that there was this link between um whatever said and done you know no matter how marxist or anti capitalist we want to be there was one good argument for capitalism that um, ultimately when there is capitalism it will inevitably bring democracy this was the good point argument uh, for capitalism but jack's argument is that what we are witnessing today is uh, especially uh, in china and so on and and singapore um, if i'm really tempted to add you know sri lanka as well and india definitely is that we have this this traditional marriage between capitalism and democracy is definitely not working anymore and we can see even more of dynamic form of capitalism thriving capitalism uh, more productive than ever before as in china it's happening without anything to do with the democratic ideals of modernity so how do we define this state um, yeah i think it's a it's a really important issue and um, when we think of the sites and sites in 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 both sense uh, that uh, sanjan had used in the sense of you know a spatial um, arrangement and also in the sense that we the visual uh, field uh, that we witness um, i think state is omnipotent uh, it's everywhere um, so how do we respond to that i'm 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 also thinking out loud like you yes yeah, so yeah Thank you, and uh, with that, I think we'll bring the evening to a close. Uh, you are more than free to engage the panelists uh, as you head out. Thank you very much for coming. As I said, please take up a catalogue. There are talks every single day at 5:30 here till the 16th. So please join us again if you can. Thank you, and good night.